Good morning, church. If you're joining us online, this is Sunday, September the 4th, Labor Day weekend. And on behalf of your family here at Mississauga City Baptist, we wish you a joyful, restful, final long weekend of the summer of 2020. Before we begin with the sermon, I have uh, an announcement that uh, I wish to read on behalf of the Council of Elders here at the church. They write, brothers and sisters in Christ, in late April, shortly after our Easter celebrations, the decision was made to reinstate mask requirements for in-person gatherings at MCBC. This was an expression of love and support for all of our people, particularly the most vulnerable, as there were concerns that it was too early to remove the mask mandate within our facility at the time. From that period until now, through the summer months, we have actively been monitoring COVID-19 status updates, as well as provincial guidelines and public health recommendations. We remain conscious that for some, the absence of protective measures, face coverings, and social distancing places them at significant personal risk. And taking all factors into consideration, we have made the decision that as, as of September the 11th, face coverings will no longer be required for in-person gatherings at MCBC at the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. services. We still recommend the use of a mask but you have the option of wearing one or not. If you choose to wear a face covering, you can continue to bring your own, or one will be provided for you and available when entering the church. Please be respectful of each other's choices about whether to wear a mask. Continue to conduct COVID-19 self-screening before you come to church, and stay home if you're sick. Hand sanitizer is also available throughout the church. We will continue to monitor and seek guidance from public health, and our plans may be modified, paused, stopped, or reversed at any time, depending on public health considerations. In his service, Council of Elders, MCBC. Well, folks, we are finishing up this morning our series on 1 Corinthians 13, We're going to be looking at the final verses in that chapter where Paul both reiterates and then expands his argument in really a a desperate attempt to try and get the Corinthian church to pay attention to how their behavior is manifesting, or in their case, not manifesting, the message of Jesus. This subject was central to their life. It wasn't a theoretical exercise. This was eminently practical. And this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, that we have been reading and committing to memory, is still listed by many commentators as being among the most misunderstood and misused of all passages in the New Testament. But there is great learning that can happen. There's great potential when you know, for example, that a word that you hang on to, a word like love, which is the central word of the passage, when you know that that word is is somewhere in the gray area of your understanding. We don't understand it fully. We, we may have got some of the nuances wrong. We haven't plumbed the depths of that. When, when we can acknowledge that, I think there are rich rewards ahead. It's true for us. It was certainly true for the church in Corinth. That church was a mess. I mean, they were a disaster with pride and division and idols and and, and corrupt sexual morality practices. And just it was a disaster. So much so that Paul says earlier in the argument, everything that you're doing now, do the opposite. 
<laughs> That's what love looks like. What you're doing is the opposite of love. So when you're inclined to do something, when your natural impulse is to do something, stop for a second and try and do the opposite. But to be clear, what Paul is going on about here in 1 Corinthians 13 isn't just behavior modification, clean up a few nasty little habits. He's not just looking for external changes. That's where religion has always been misunderstood and misused. If religion is seen to be just compliance, here's the rules, you follow them, you're in the in crowd, the good crowd, the God-blessed crowd, you don't follow them, you're on the outs and your destination is dark. But religion at its core is not about that. Religion is internal. It's about interior change. It's about transformation. And Paul wants those in Corinth to understand something about the character of God, about his truest nature, to understand it at such a deep and penetrating level that it kind of leaks into all the areas of our lives. When what is going on inside here changes the inevitable outflow is going to be in our actions, our choices, our behaviors. If you only work the other way, in just compliance to rules, there's a pretty good chance that that never actually works its way inward. And you will always just resent the rules for being there. So we're going to look together at the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your device or your Bible, please follow along with me. Here we're starting in verse 8. Paul says... Love never ends. But as for prophecies, these things will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I gave up my childish ways, for now we see only in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love. What is it that Paul is trying to communicate in these last verses of this chapter? This this mounting crescendo that ends with that declaration. These three great attributes, great virtues remain. But the greatest of all three is love. What is it that he's trying to get his people to understand? There is something that happens when you get to the essence of a thing. When you peel back all the layers, when you get to the core, what is, what is the central reality? What is the absolute truth? What is it that determines the fundamental nature of a thing? And what Paul seems to be driving at here, unmistakably, is that the, at the center of who God is, is not so much his omnipotence, all-powerful, or his all-seeing, all-knowing spirit. Those things are all true. But at the center of who he is, at the core, is love. And everything else emanates out from that. 
His holiness, His compassion, His justice. It all emanates from that. When you strip away anything that is non-essential, and you dig deep enough to find what is irreducible, there in the universe and in God Himself, you have this one thing that remains. The greatest of all these is love. You know, in the previous chapter, if you want to flip a page back, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is trying to paint a picture of what the church ought to be like. You know, and in many ways we joke about it. It's sort of the opposite of what you are. But but he wants to move from the negative to the positive. What would it be like? Uh, How would it be different from the sad community that you have become? He says it would be a community marked by unity and purpose and a celebration of giftedness. There would be people with the gift of administration, gifted by God to bring to bring order out of chaos. There would be people with the gift of giving, motivated to give over and above what most of us can give for the sake, for the good of others. There would be people with the gift of teaching who teach creatively and praying, who who prayed passionately. But when you get to chapter 13, he says, you know, even when all of those things pass away, the one irreducible constant of the nature of God and the one indelible marker of the people who bear his name is love. Listen again to verses 8, 9, and 10. Love never ends. Paul says, as for the gift of prophecy, which he's just talked about as a character of the people of God, that will pass away. Some of you have the gift of tongues. He's talked about that. That too will cease. Those of you will bring great knowledge to the church. What a gift that is. But that too will pass away. What we know now is only a partial glimpse, he says. And we prophesy and we use our gifts, but only to a certain level. But when the perfect comes, when we come to know God and understand what is the irreducible center of his character and his purpose, the partial things, they all pass away. And we're left only with this glimmering hope diamond of the Bible. With the love of God. There is something more impressive than giftedness. Even God-given gifts. There is something more important than talent in the life of God's people. More important than a performance that brings an audience to their feet or drives them to their knees. A sermon that feels like it was written by heaven itself and delivered by one of his angels. But when all is stripped away, it is those simple expressions of the loving character of God lived out by the people of God that will bring more glory and more joy to God than anything else. And Paul is reminding us, he's desperate for people to understand, not just the church in Corinth, but but all the churches and generations that would follow, that What remains when everything else that we care about so much is gone is love. The second thing, though, that Paul is really trying to get us to understand about love, I mean, not not only is it supreme, you know, by the way, there is a there is a great here's a take home exercise, a great jazz album called A Love Supreme. It is the signature work of a jazz artist, a saxophonist named John Coltrane. And it was his meditation 
on the love of God. He realized after living a rough life, and like many jazz musicians, it was a rough life, that when all was stripped away, this remains. And the record is kind of one long artistic expression of the supremacy of the love of God. Check it out. A love supreme. John Coltrane. That's kind of cool homework to have, isn't it? Not only is love supreme, though, Paul wants us to know that this love is personal. This isn't theoretical. This isn't abstract. It isn't remote or removed. There is something that happens, and it happens here, uniquely in verse 11, that allows us to get a handle on it. In verse 11, the pronoun shifts. Do you notice it? He's been talking collectively about the plural, but in verse 11, it gets personal. And he shifts to the, to the first person singular. He says, as for me, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, what happened? I gave up childish ways. Why is that verse so critical? Not only is it shifting for the first time to this first person language, but I think Paul is offering up his own life as evidence for just how magnificent and life-changing this is, this central attribute of God. You understand what the spiritual gifts are, Paul says, and he lists them out. But do you understand what love is? Let me give you a case study. Let me give you my own life. It's like Paul is letting us in on a secret. He says, let me show you the before and after picture of me. Before my life is flooded by the love of Jesus and, and afterwards. So let me give you just for a few minutes a behind-the-scenes glimpse at the man who wrote the words in 1 Corinthians 13. At a man who was born and given the name Saul. And we catch an early glimpse of Saul in the book of Acts. We find him there in the background in chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, when the early church was first getting started, there was a saint, a gifted speaker, a preacher, a man named Stephen, and he gives this dramatic, long, moving sermon out in the middle of the marketplace. It's probably, it's the longest sermon I think recorded in the Bible, longer than any of the sermons that Jesus gives. Even still, it clocks in at less than 30 minutes, and somebody once reminded me that uh, that's probably a good thing to shoot for. But in this sermon, he gives the great arc of God's saving work throughout history. And then it ends with Jesus, the great exclamation point of what God is trying to achieve. And as any good preacher does, at the end of the sermon, he moves people towards that that point of conviction. And in this case, he's looking out at a mixed audience that includes the religious leaders who are working covertly behind the scenes to stir the people up against him, setting up false witnesses against Stephen, hatching a plan to see him executed. He says to them directly, you stiff-necked people, you stiff-necked people who resist the Holy Spirit, you must stop persecuting God's church. And then he calls them too to repentance. Well, they didn't respond well to that. In fact, it says when they heard his words, they became enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice. They plugged their ears. They rushed the stage. They grabbed Stephen. They dragged him outside the city. And they stoned him to death. He is the first martyr of the Christian church. 
And in the very next verse, verse 8, we're given a glimpse of a shadowy figure there on the edges of all of these diabolical events, presiding over everything that's happening. And it says that Saul was there. He was the man in charge. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul, who who would go on to become Paul, not just a reversal of a letter, but the transformation of an entire life. Saul, who would become Paul, who writes 1 Corinthians 13. What is it that accounts for the transformation from this man who is raging against the church of Jesus, dragging men and women into the off the street and into prison, breathing murderous threats out against the disciples, the Bible says. This is Saul. A man who would later become the apostle who writes these these beautiful, compelling words that give us a depth and a range of the understanding of the word love that is beyond compare. What happened? Well, in a word, Jesus. (laughs) Of course, I mean, Jesus happened. Not long after that description of Saul at work persecuting the followers of Jesus, he finds himself alone on a road towards Emmaus, and he hears an audible voice, Jesus speaking directly to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what follows is a transaction that goes on between the two of them, and it leaves Saul blind for a time, physically blind while he's learning He's learning to see again spiritually. He's being transformed, slowly remade from the inside out again. He was given a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new heart. A few of the followers of Jesus, still with a lot of reticence and caution, understandably why, this is the great enemy of the church, but they they took him away and they took him in, they tucked him away in a home, they they attended to his needs until his sight was restored. And then slowly, one by one, they introduced him to some of the other disciples. And reluctantly, they started to believe that Jesus actually had done a miracle in this man's life. To their great adversary, to the enemy of the church, in the months that, that followed, Paul would be invited to join Barnabas in the first great missionary effort to take the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Samaria. The first effort in the great global mission of the church. What changes somebody from Saul to Paul? And what is it that can so radically reorient a life? For Paul, none of this was theoretical. When you think about Acts chapters 8 to 10, and then you read 1 Corinthians 13, you know that you're in the presence of something that is, that is revolutionary in a life. Something that is only possible when, when a person encounters an earth-shattering, soul-changing force. Paul goes on to say, that's love. And it is eminently personal. So not only is it supreme, not only is it personal, practical, Paul goes on to say that it is eternal, that has no end to it. This love I'm asking you to understand, he says, is not just supreme, 
which makes it valuable to its core. It's not just personal, but it stretches on to all eternity. Meaning, even though we may catch only a glimpse now, it will take all glimpses of all eternity to begin to get the fullest awareness of just what this means. It's as if God is saying, I have wonders in store for you that will take a myriad of senses beyond the five that you have and a spance, an expanse of time beyond your ability to measure just to soak in the wonders of who I am and what it means to say, above all, God is love. In verse 13, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says, so now we have these three, faith, hope, love. The the great triad, the virtues of a life well lived, faith, hope, love. But when all is stripped away, the one that lasts, the one that takes eternity to comprehend, is love. Now we're coming to the end of the series, and as we've tried to do each week, we try to wrestle through what it means. I mean, practically, what is the what is the takeaway from well-known words like this one? Do we just uh, engrave them in a plaque and put them on our kitchen walls? Do, do we just kind of underline them in our Bible or commit them to memory and then move on with life? Or is there a way of uh, of going back and looking through a different lens at the life of Jesus? And getting life lessons, practical lessons for what that means in our day-to-day lives and choices. Well, that's, that's kind of what I'd like to do with you in the last few minutes that we have. During the four Gospels, Jesus is not just trying to teach, though he gives us some of those memorable teaching we have. He is trying to demonstrate tangibly, practically, what this all looks like. And there are kind of three key distinctions in the ministry of Jesus that take love and move it out of the category of a feel-good emotion and drop it in the category of of a very tangible, practical, sometimes risky, always relevant engagement with the world. Love is not just feeling warm feelings about those that we care about. Love is is something that moves us out of the realm of the hallmark into the the realm of the, of, of the risky and the raw and the sometimes painful because it's there that it becomes actionable. It's there in those radical encounters like the one Paul himself had that life really changes. So notice the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry. This is striking and you cannot miss it. Jesus does not focus his ministry as you would expect He's a rabbi, he's a good Jewish leader, but he does not focus his ministry on religious institutions. In fact, he has very little to do with them, and when he does, it always goes badly. He never really seeks out religious leaders and says, if I can win the in crowd, I'll win them all. A few of those leaders sought him out, but that, that was a different thing. Instead, Jesus focused his attention on those who are always at the edges of society, those that the religious establishment of the day would deem to be marginalized and and unclean and disreputable and sinful. And, And Jesus spent his time there as if to say, you know, that edge, that is the new center. 
Remember we talked about this a few years, a few weeks ago, that, uh, that, that loving those who are in our own little circle of family, where it's easy to say we celebrate their victories, we share their pains, uh, that moving that circle to include our rivals and those who are outside of the circle of oneness, that expanding the circle really is the, the lifelong engagement of a Christ follower in loving ways. The edge is the new center. Those of you who confine your lives to the center, Jesus says in his own example, are, are mistaken. In fact, he does this so often that he becomes notorious for it. One of the chief criticisms of Jesus was this, that he's always hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus takes that criticism and he wears it like a badge of honor. Yep, that's me. That's me, he says. Why? Because that's how far the love of God goes. Maybe a better way to say it is that, is that that's where the love of God starts. I'm not sure about you, but my week has its high points and its low points. The high point of my week, well, there's a couple. One is on Thursdays. When we gathered here together to receive a generous gift of food and clothing donations and sort it and prepare it, and then we welcome people who come. And they come to, um, to I hope, enjoy the company of those who, who are here and to enjoy the gifts that we have been pleased and blessed to be able to share. But when I cannot be there for open hands, there's just something in me that withers a little bit. It is my connection, my contact with those who we might say live on the fringes of our own society that is the most meaningful part of my week. And when I miss it, something inside of me sinks. There are similar kinds of engagement in in my week where, where the time spent outside of these doors really gives focus and clarity to the moments that we need to spend inside. Perhaps, perhaps God is inviting you to test the waters in some way by moving to the edges. What would that look like? I mean, we all have our own understanding of who's on the margins, but what would it look like to take a tangible step in that direction? Let me give you another example. Later this month, there are a group of us We're going to try and spend our time learning and living alongside those victims of the sex trade industry in Canada. Those have been trapped in the modern equivalent of slavery in our own country. We're going to be learning their story. We're going to be praying for the centers that keep them in bondage. We're going to be raising funds. And if if that sounds like something that you would like like to be a part of, you'll find information on the church website about the Walk for Freedom and about the organization that we partnered with in sponsoring it, a group called Fight for Freedom. You know, it wasn't just the marginalized that Jesus was sending a message to in the world. He was sending the same message to his own inner circle. And maybe that's the second really distinctive feature of the ministry of Jesus. Most rabbis... 
they would not have approved of Jesus' choice. It was odd to say the least. If you were a rabbi looking to recruit followers, you would go to the rabbinical school, you would pick the cream of the crop. You'd go to the local synagogue and find the, the synagogue superstars, if there are such things. I guess there probably were in the ancient world. But you would recruit the brightest and the best to be part of your own rabbinical circle. And then upon inviting them in, every Jewish mother's dream would be fulfilled. This would be a a great blessing, something that would be like a badge of honor for the sake of the family. That's not where Jesus went to build his own circle. Who does he invite? Well, first he goes to Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Those were two men who were philosophically and ideologically opposed to each other at the far edges of society. Two different extremes. You could not find a better example of those in opposition. Think Russian and Ukrainian or, or Arab and Israeli. It was like that. And he went to both of them and said, boys, you've got nothing in common. If we were to draw a Venn diagram of your lives and there was only this much overlap between the two circles... I'm there in the overlap. And that's going to be enough. We're going to start there. Simon the Zealot was attracted to Jesus initially because he was convinced that the intent, the direction of Jesus' life was to overthrow the power of Rome and institute a new government. Simon was a zealot. He lived for that stuff. Matthew, the tax collector, was on the other side. He was seen by his contemporaries as a, 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 great, a great betrayer of the family and the life and the tribe for which he had come. He worked for the Roman government and he pocketed a lot of money doing it, extorting it from his own countrymen. These guys would be at the opposite end of a political rally, probably hurling explicatives at each other or something even worse. Jesus intentionally brings them together in his own little inner circle because he knows that the kind of love that is going to be made available in the world has to be powerful enough to overcome these kind of rivalries. Next he goes to a, a couple of brothers, James and John who had a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. You would think that made them courageous, kind of Thor-like, but actually the word means they were sons of anger, and that's a better description of them. They were irritable. Uh, They had anger management issues. They had a mother who followed around all the time, saying, hey, Jesus, pay attention to my boys. Pay attention to them. He called out Peter, probably the disciple who was most often publicly rebuked by Jesus for missing the point and acting impulsively. Not only does he put Peter in the inner circle, it's Peter who's there at the very end when he says, now we're going to scale this whole thing up, this this mission that you've been a part of in a small way, we're going to take it global. And Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Symbolically, I'm passing the torch to you. You take it and run with it, Peter. I trust you. He invited Judas into his inner circle. Why? Because Jesus is trying to get us to understand that loving people who you like doesn't count at all. That's just love 101. In fact, he says rather clearly in Luke in chapter 6, what credit do you get? What good is it for you if you love people who are like you? Lend people money who can repay it to you. Even the heathens do this. That's just love 101. Jesus is inviting us instead to this uncommon, 
to this rare but but powerful kind of love that that knows and embraces differences, but recognizes that those differences are secondary or tertiary to the centrality and the supremacy of who God is and the love which is at the very center of his character. That's why more than anything else, during these hard months and now years of COVID, the thing that I lament most about the body of Christ is the way that differences which are secondary or tertiary to who we are have robbed us of the unity that ought to be ours if we claim and understand the love of Christ. Jesus worked so hard. Uh, He spent so much of his ministry trying to demonstrate this uncommon, unrelenting, countercultural way of being. Sometimes it, it absolutely exhausted him. From time to time, you see him stepping back from the crowds to rest, to get some sleep. Uh, sometimes it even says that the spirit went out of him for a time. You find him climbing into a boat and, and casting himself away from the crowds just to, in, to enjoy a few times to to be able to recompose himself. Sometimes it says Jesus even went missing. They went to find him. They found him at prayer, usually wrestling through the consequences of kind of love that is willing to suffer so deeply for the sake of another. An historian of early Christianity wrote this. He said in the early church, up to the year 300, when Constantine got a hold of it, the number one conversation in the church would that they would have had when they came together was this. How do we nobly endure suffering for the sake of the gospel? But he goes on to say that I believe now in North America, we have lost our capacity to have that kind of conversation. Instead, we spend the majority of our time talking about our own rights, our own comfort and our own blessing. I don't want to suggest that on the surface there's things that are wrong about those. But Jesus speaks an awful lot less about rights and comfort and blessing than he does about sharing in the suffering of Jesus as a sign of the love that we hold on to. An uncommon, compelling, life-changing, forever transforming love. Nineteen oh three. U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt, quite a character, I understand, saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. Here's what he wrote in his journal. He says, I was completely gobsmacked by it. What a great word. I think we need to recover that word, gobsmacked. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I love the way that it sounds. Are we gobsmacked by things that ought to stop us in our tracks? a man decides to take his nine-year-old son to the Grand Canyon to celebrate his birthday. So they pile into the car, they drive all day, they drive all night. They pull into the parking lot. And he reaches over and whispers into, into his son's ear as he's waking up, says, do you trust me? It's a good thing the son is nine, not 19. Or the answer might be a little bit different. But the son says, of course, I trust you, Dad. He says, great, I want you to come outside, but keep your eyes closed. Keep your eyes closed and hold my hand and don't open your eyes until I tell you. And he walks his son 
right to the edge of that magnificent chasm, the Grand Canyon. And just as the sun is cresting over the flat horizon and its rays begin to penetrate the, the nooks and crannies with shafts of orange and purple, he has the sun take his hands off his eyes. And for a few sacred moments, they just looked, stunned in the silence. That nine-year-old boy, his eyes began to well up with tears. And he said, Dad, Dad, I had no idea. I had no idea. Friends, I think we really have no idea what it means to say that at the very center of who he is, God is love. We have no idea what it means to say that the love of God has been made available to us. And at last, Paul, after penning some of the most beautiful words ever written about love, runs out of words. And he says, in effect, folks, it is so good, you can't even comprehend it. And it never ends. And the best that we can do is is catch just a little glimpse of it. We just see signs of it rising in our lives. Then we build habits and routines into our lives where we can push out to the margins and practice what it is that we have witnessed. And to make sure that from time to time we find our way back to the canyon again, that we do so regularly so that when we lose sight of it, we can sit there long enough to learn it all over again and to deepen ourselves in it. And so that next time that happens, it's easier to find and easier to hold on to. That kind of love that abides even beyond faith and hope and everything else made available to us. It is the indelible mark of those who follow Jesus and it will always be the surest sign of a church that claims to bear his name. Let me pray for us that we be that church. Let's pray. God, for this word love, that we think about and talk about and pretend we understand. May you remind us daily that, that we have no idea Make us courageous and make us kind and compassionate and empathic and clear and strong and moving toward people and finding it deep in our own souls. May part of the reason that we look forward to eternity be that ever deepening, if if minuscule understanding of your own true nature and of this kind of love. Most of all, Lord, We are grateful for the expression of love that comes in the form of your son, Jesus Christ. And we are privileged to gather, to worship, and to pray in his name. Amen.